0: I can remember as a junior in high school, I attended something called Disciple Now. It was a weekend with uh, some of the other kids from my church, and for the very first time that weekend, I was asked about my sense of identity. What makes you who you are? Uh, how do you define yourself? Now, I had never actually had those questions posed to me directly, but The more I thought about it, I began to realize my whole life had been an effort to answer those questions, to figure that stuff out, to define my identity. All of my life, I was trying to fit in, trying to prove myself, trying to be good enough, and so on. Now, this was 1999. And in the two decades since, I don't have to convince you of this the issue of identity has completely swept over our culture. It is everywhere you look, more than ever. It is so crucial for us that we define who we are individually, that we decide what we want to be. And I don't think it's a stretch for us to say that it's become our most prized virtue, uh, self-determination Deciding who I am, who I want to be, what I want to do. See, nobody gets to define me. Nobody's allowed to get in the way of my dreams. Isn't that the mentality? Uh, Or you could take the words of Queen Elsa from the movie Frozen. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Well, this search for identity, it takes a different shape and form over time. It's a little different in modern American culture than perhaps it is in other cultures or in other generations. But it's not something new. We've always asked this question from day one. Who am I? What makes me significant? What's the meaning and the purpose of my life? All of us spend our lives digging, trying to figure these things out, even if we never speak it out loud. Well, our scripture today really gives us an ultimate answer. Uh, This scripture today doesn't speak to every possible question or issue, but in terms of honing in on what is ultimate and true about us, about the meaning and purpose of our lives, why we're here, um, this is it. Philippians chapter 3. And what we're going to see, I think very clearly, is true identity is not found simply by looking deep inside yourself. It's not found in anything that you or I can achieve. We actually receive our identity. We find it in the person of Jesus Christ. And what we find in Christ is truer, it's richer, it's far more glorious than anything else we could possibly imagine or conjure up or create for ourselves. And the Apostle Paul frames it, I think, perfectly here in Philippians chapter 3. This chapter begins with a warning, but then Paul is going to take that warning and turn it into personal testimony. And Paul's personal testimony, even though the details are certainly unique, his testimony is what every single person is meant to experience by faith in Christ Jesus. Every person... Audifying point of commonality here today, both in the warning itself, the negative side, and certainly the positive side of those who live by faith in Christ. So look with me at Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul begins this chapter, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. When Paul says the dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision, he's talking about one group of people here. These were Jewish false teachers who went around trying to discredit the faith of Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians. And their message was, sure, you have faith in Jesus, but you're not really one of God's chosen people. You'll always be on the outside looking in unless you make yourself like us, unless you make yourself more Jewish, unless you get circumcised and observe our feasts and our temple worship and and the cleanliness codes and all the rest, God will not truly accept you because you're not really one of his people. You need faith in Christ, plus you need to come over to our side and be like we are. Now, does that sound right? We can see how it would be tempting. Jesus was Jewish. The apostles we're Jewish. God's chosen people, the entire Old Testament, the people of Israel, right? It's a very intoxicating thought that if God's really going to accept me, I'm going to have to become more like that. But Paul turns the tables here. He says, no way. We are the true circumcision. We are the real thing. Why? What makes us the real thing? Because we worship in the Spirit of God And glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. See, what makes us God's children has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with faith in Christ and the indwelling Spirit of God. Why, Paul says, would we go back to a system of self determination? if we have already received God's grace in full as a free gift? Why would we ever take the good news of the gospel and sour it by adding our own good works to it? God doesn't need that. He has saved us by grace. Now, you can read Paul's letter to the Galatians to get a much fuller argument on this. But very simply, he's telling us, Anyone who tries to disturb your faith by trying to add human works into it, these people are putting their confidence, their trust, in the wrong place. And in this case, Paul says, these people are not well-meaning. They're trying to ruin you. Now, right there, verses 1 through 3, it seems like Paul has made his point just fine. Don't fall for this. But what comes next? is the stuff that has changed my life, truly. This scripture going on 20 years now continues to change my life. This is Paul's own personal testimony, how he went from the old way of self-determination to the new and true way of salvation. So look with me at Philippians 3, verse 4. Although, he says, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has, else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. This is, a, this is a picture of Paul's former life. And he gives it to us to make a point. These false teachers are trying to make you jump through all the old religious hoops in order to make yourself truly acceptable to God. But I've jumped through them all, Paul tells us. No one has a better religious pedigree than me. No one has worked harder for God's approval than I have. So here's my resume. Here are the things that once gave me my identity. Here are the things I used to place my confidence in. And we see the list. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is Paul's way of saying, I was born right smack dab in the center of God's chosen people. Pure bread, pure-blooded. I came from the perfect stock. My grandpa was one of the founding members of the country club. I mean, that's what he's saying, in essence. I had all the right advantages from birth, but more than that, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So Paul didn't rest on his pedigree. He says, I outworked everybody. No one was more passionate than no one studied harder than me. No one could pin me down and discredit me and find fault with me. Uh, Paul is saying, I checked all the right boxes. I met all the requirements. If a person can earn God's approval through religious pedigree and religious activity, then Paul would have been the poster child. He had it all. Is is, is Paul being arrogant to tell us these things? I mean, what, what's he doing in these verses. Why tell us this? Well, it would be one thing for Paul to stop back in verse 3 and say, what these false teachers are telling you, it's all a dead end. He can say that. But it's another thing for Paul to come around and say, I came to this dead end personally. It's not just theory I'm giving you here. I've been there. I've done it. And that's what sets up the amazing contrast, beginning in verse 7. Paul says, But whatever things were gain to me, everything I built my life on, my pedigree, my achievements, my respectability, my status, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What was once my gain, what was once to my profit, To my advantage, I now consider loss, detriment, because of Jesus. Y'all, a complete reversal has taken place, but there's more. Verse 8, more than that. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. This is a stunning progression right here. I consider all things to be loss. We see that? Not just my own things, verse 4, but everything. Everything is loss. Loss. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, I used to read this and think, oh, so Paul's old life was good, but now he has Jesus, so it's even better. That's how the the scripture used to read to me. Um, He used to value A the most, but now he's discovered B. And he values B more. But y'all, that does not get to the heart of what Paul is actually saying here. Not at all. It is much deeper than that. Paul doesn't say, yeah, I was doing just fine. But then I traded up for something better. I upgraded. That is not what the scripture says. No, he's talking about a totally new and different category. In view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, Paul says everything else, everything else is loss. Remember these famous words that came from the mouth of Jesus. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Do We remember that. This is the same principle. This is what Paul is echoing in Philippians 3. Paul is saying that for me to gain every single advantage, every single blessing, every single good thing that the world has to offer, if I gained it all, in the end, it would be a net loss without Jesus. If you give me every possible good thing there is, minus Jesus, Paul says, I will have lost everything. I will have gained nothing. And see, for Paul, this wasn't just a theory. This wasn't just nice spiritual language. This was his actual experience. We see it in verse 8, what we already read. He says, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul became a Christian, and he lost his resume. He lost his status, his reputation. Even right now, as he is writing these words, he's in chains in prison. All the the comfort and acclaim and prestige Paul had built up for himself, he lost. I've lost all things. But do you see what he says? And I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him one of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible. I count them, but rubbish. Now, and that word rubbish, as Paul writes it in the Greek language, it's much stronger than our word in English. This is literally the stuff that gets flushed down the toilet. If you have an old King James Version, it doesn't translate rubbish, it translates dung, and that's what it is. That's what Paul considers all the good things in the world if Jesus is not there. If somehow he could achieve every good thing, it is dung, it is refuse without Christ. And so I I hope we're getting a clearer picture of the contrast here. Knowing Jesus is so vastly superior to me that even the very best of what I used to be is now detestable to me. I want nothing to do with it. I don't look back over my shoulder with fondness. Those were the days. Wasn't that nice? No, he says, everything I once was, all that I once possessed, I now gladly flush away. Because what he had received instead was of a different category altogether. Christ wasn't just an upgrade of his former life. It was a new life entirely. Now, there's a massive point right here that I want us to take in. Because if you're anything like me, um, when we think of what Jesus has done for us, it's usually pretty easy to look back into the past, to look back on our sins and say, Yes, I, I was once very prideful or selfish or lustful. I used to lie. I used to do drugs and so on. Whatever you fill in your own blanks to be, whatever you knew of your former sinful lifestyle that Jesus rescued you out of, right? But then I heard the gospel of grace and I trusted Christ and he forgave my sins. Okay, well, if that's the way I view myself, my life, All the bad stuff I did, Jesus forgave me. Well, naturally, I'm glad to flush those things away and call them rubbish. That's sin. It's bad. I know it's bad, and I'm glad I've been forgiven of it. And y'all, that's 100% right. That's what it means to be a Christian. But that's not all. Because you notice what Paul is actually saying in this scripture. Not just that bad things and sinful things are rubbish, Paul says, I count all things to be loss. I consider all things rubbish in view of Christ compared with Christ. See, remember Paul's resume. Paul in in Philippians 3, he does not give us a list of his sins. We can find those elsewhere, but not here. He doesn't give us a list of bad things. He actually says, As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Which means his life was full of diligence and and obedience. Nobody could pin him down and say, here, you missed it. No, he says, "You, you could not find fault in me, at least not outwardly. His life was full of what we would consider good, moral, right things. But now, he says, it's all rubbish. How do we make sense of that? Couldn't God, you know, account the good things from the past into Paul's present and future? Like, aren't the good things still good? Don't they still count? No, look at what verse 9 says. Not that the good things were not good, but that it was not true righteousness. You see in verse 9, Paul says, I am now found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith see paul paul did not wake up one morning in a ditch his life a total wreck And he looked at his sin and said, I need Jesus. Um, He was on the top rung of the ladder. Paul was not down in the ditch. He was was at the top. He was a good religious man. But then he came to realize, through the intervening grace of Jesus, Paul came to realize there is no such thing as self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a sin, not a virtue. There's There's no such thing as a righteousness which you can earn and achieve and accrue for yourself, no matter how hard a person tries. There is no such righteousness of my own that I can achieve through God's law. It doesn't exist. There's only one way to be righteous. It is the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith in Jesus. That's what Paul discovered. And this is why Paul says, even my good things I count as loss. Even all the good parts of my resume that anybody would have been happy to have for themselves, to to boast in themselves, any of those good things, no. Those good things were actually driving him away from faith in Jesus. And therefore, ultimately, they weren't good at all. It was his own self-made righteousness that was ruining him. There is no righteousness of my own that God will accept, only the righteousness that he gives as a gift by grace through faith in Jesus. And so, y'all, here's this massive truth that we've got to understand. I realize a lot of us who are watching, we have pretty good resumes, spiritual resumes. Most of us have a pretty good reputation, and we've lived, at least outwardly, we've lived pretty decent lives. I think that's probably true for most of us. And so we're prone to think, I'm prone to think, well, all I really need from God is just a little trim. Just a little pruning away of some some things to shape me up. Because otherwise, I'm pretty good. But do you see what Paul is saying? Jesus doesn't come in and prune the old tree. He uproots us entirely. That's what it means to be saved. You don't get dressed up. Because you were good enough, almost, and God just needed a little... Uh, to offer a little help. No, he uproots us entirely. He must save us and make us new because even our good things are rubbish in view of his true righteousness, which must be given to us. And he delights to give to us as a free gift by faith. If any of us think we are good with God, Because of our own goodness, Paul's words are here to shatter that false identity and to reveal the true way of salvation. There is no such thing as a righteousness of my own. Only what God delights to give me by faith in his Son. God must save the bad people and God must save the good people too. Only by his righteousness can we be saved. And so for some of us, we need to hear that message because we don't think of ourselves as all that bad. But Paul, who was the best of all of us, came to recognize, I cannot live by my own righteousness but only that which is given to me by a gracious God. And that is good news. Now look at at how Paul ends his thought here. It's uh, it's beautiful, and we're going to really look at it more next week. But verse 10, he says, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Um, It's not just God's righteousness that Paul has received. It's the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and being made like Christ in his death. And it's a new life ambition to pursue Christ wholeheartedly all the way to the very end, all the way until the day of resurrection. Now, what does all that mean? Well, come back next week. Tune in next week. Um, We're going to go into much more detail about these final two verses because they lead into what comes next as well. But here's why I included this today, even though we're not going to discuss it. Uh, Just look again at the beginning of verse 10. That I may know him. That's Paul's delight. That's Paul's purpose. That's his goal. That I may know Christ. Everything Paul says after that in verses 10 and 11 is merely an extension of that little phrase. That I may know him. Paul's identity, y'all, is built on this little phrase. That I may know Christ. And if you recall in verse 8, I count all things to be loss, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not just believing in Jesus, not just receiving good things from Jesus, but knowing Jesus. Um, you see, but basically all religions say that God, if they call him God, whatever they may call God, God is creator and God is ruler and God is judge. God gives laws and then God punishes us or rewards us accordingly. Right? Most religions agree on some form of that. But only in the person of Jesus Christ do we discover the one true God who actually delights to know us intimately. He doesn't just preside over the creation, He doesn't just rule and reign and judge and pass down laws and then make judgments accordingly. God doesn't hide from us because we're unworthy of Him, He doesn't remain aloof from his creation because he's too holy to touch what he's made. No, God reveals himself to us in sending his son for us that we may know him, that we may trust him, that we may experience union with him forever. What kind of God would do that? The one true God has made himself known, and has delighted to know us. Y'all, every single one of us wants the same thing that Paul wanted. An identity that is strong and fulfilling and lasting and significant. I don't know anybody who just doesn't care. We all want a sense of self that is meaningful, right? Well, in that case... To each of us, Paul delivers this wonderful, liberating good news. It's good news theologically. It's true because the Bible says so, but it's also what Paul himself knew from experience. He lived it. The good news for us that we recognize, I hope, in Philippians 3 is that our deepest need is not met by looking inward but upward. Our identity is not achieved, but received. And so for us, the unraveling of our old self is not a loss to us. If we lose our sense of achievement, of pedigree, of whatever else we may build our sense of identity upon, If we lose it, then we can rejoice in that loss because it's no loss at all. Because in its place, we receive immeasurable gain. Surpassing greatness. What comes to us when we know Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus doesn't just get us into heaven. Jesus comes down that we may know him walk with him, live for him, abide in him, and have an an identity that is not of our own making, but one that we are given by the creator of the universe himself, who delights to know you and delights to make himself known. Let's pray that we would know the surpassing value of life in Christ, and that it would change everything. Father, would you grant us this morning a deep and sincere understanding of what's been said, what Paul has told us, that our very natural desire is to create an identity for ourselves, to find it, in things that that are of this world, to find it in our family of origin, our family tree, the place where we were raised, our 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 socioeconomic status, our skin color, whatever it is that we might try to find our identity in, our achievement, our respectability, our reputation, our diplomas, our 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 trophies, whatever it is that we seek to find ourselves in. Father, would you uproot us? We don't need pruning. We need changing. We need transforming. Would you uproot us and show us the surpassing greatness of Christ? That your love for us, Father, is not predicated on anything about us that we can earn or deserve, or that we could lose. That you love us because you are love. And Lord, that your mercy toward us is not greater or less based on our worthiness, but that you have had infinite mercy on even the worst of our transgressions. Lord, whether we were at the top of the ladder or in the bottom of the ditch, it didn't matter. Your mercy came to us through Jesus Christ, and we need your righteousness. Thank you, Father, that you have delighted to give it. Let us receive it. Let us trust in a Savior that we might, like Paul say, I have no righteousness of my own but that which is through faith in Christ, that I may know him. Lord, would you give us no greater joy, no greater sense of who we are and why we're here than that right there. Uh, Father, for me, for many of us, we need a new category. We don't need just a little adjustment. Um, we, We are perhaps kind of lumping Jesus together with the rest of our values and thinking he belongs at the top. But Lord, I pray that you would make us more like Paul's heart and testimony here. Jesus is not one of many values. He is the surpassing value. Everything else uh, may be flushed away by comparison. Jesus is that great. And Father, as we take this into our hearts, Lord, let us live this way. Let us truly live. Let us make decisions. Let us speak and act in such a way that reflects that Jesus is of surpassing worth to us because He really is. He has done everything to deserve this kind of worship. He is, in very nature, God. There's nothing about Jesus that we can shrink down and diminish. He is everything. Father, would you help us in our hearts to treat him as he deserves and to find the immeasurable joy that comes with knowing Christ. And it's in his name we ask it together. Amen.